Welcome to the June session of June 2007 session, I should say, for the benefit of posterity. When I first began doing Rare Book School lectures, which was in November of 1972, if you can imagine such a thing, uh, it never occurred to me to put dates on the posters. The result is that 35 years later, I have to do serious research whenever I try to find out when some of those lectures happened, if I had only the poster to go on. So, the June 2007 Rare Book School, we're pleased to inaugurate this season with Steve Barry, who is uh, a serious, to put it mildly, student of 19th century American bookbinding history, talking about a recent discovery. Great. Can everybody hear me? Good. Uh, first, let me say, I was only looking at the insides of books 10 years ago. Then I took Sue Allen's course in 1998, January 1998, and started looking at the outsides, and have been studying those pretty, pretty intensely since. Take a close look at this first slide. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of some tips that kind of led me to, to the discovery of this album. So look at those corner pieces and then look at the, the real book. Okay, why Samuel Dodd? This is all about a New Jersey uh, tool cutter named Samuel Dodd. I purchased an album, this album in 2001, just a gorgeous album done by John Riker of New York who did lots of different albums. And uh, this one, most of his albums aren't dated, so you have to go by internal dates. And this one was in, internally dated with uh, manuscript entries from 1836. Uh, it's an embossed cathedral binding, which makes it very special. It's difficult to see in this slide, but I'll have some blow-ups. Uh, but it's signed in the very bottom of the cathedral in extremely small letters, like a 32nd of an inch high, S. Dodd in Jersey. And when I saw this, I bought this from Peter Luke at a book fair. When I saw it, I thought I made a big discovery. And uh, here's a blow-up of the cathedral. And where I have the arrows at the bottom, just above that, is Samuel or S. Dodd. And if you blow that up, it says S. Dodd in Jersey. And then this is a real big blow-up. I hope everybody can see it. There's his name. Well, this is the only thing he ever signed, which is pretty remarkable because it's a, it's a fantastic example of workmanship of a plaque for an album. I thought I made a big discovery, and then, of course, I looked in Wolf, the Bible of embossed American bindings, and it's Wolf number 18, actually. Uh, here's, an, here's the library company. This is Wolf's copy. The library company kindly sent me a picture on the left it's internally dated 1835, and it's identical to mine except for the color and a little central medallion, but it's the same binding with the same corner tools and so forth there. So, what did Wolf say about Dot? Well, not a whole lot. He said he was born in Bloomfield, New Jersey, or that's where he came from. He may have worked in Newark, New Jersey as well. Bloomfield is about three and a half miles northwest of Newark, but it's a small farming community. Uh, just a few hundred people at the time. Uh, he said he was an engraver working from, the, say, 1820 to 1860. 
and he got his information from uh, Groch and Wallace's dictionary of uh, artists. But again, it's the only known sign designed by him, which is pretty remarkable. And if any of you have taken Sue's course, now she's the expert on signed uh, uh, designs on books. John Feely did hundreds that he signed. This guy did just one. So we fast forward to just a year ago, and Sue called me and she said, Steve, I'm working on this part of my book now. Uh, different, different people. What can you tell me about Samuel Dodd? And she knew that I get pretty involved in trying to research some of these people through online census and, and uh, genealogy sites. So she also had found that Dodd had received a silver medal at the New York American Institute Fair in three years, which is pretty, pretty significant, 1848, 49, and 56. So he must have been somebody of some repute. So I looked at census records, uh, city directories, genealogy, genealogy databases, and of course the internet. And what I found in the census is in 1850, he was, he was an engraver, he had real estate in it by 1850 of $2,500, which is fairly significant in a small town. He was married, he had two sons who later went on to become engravers for a short period of time. And actually, that's, they're the link to this book. And he had three daughters as well. He had a mother, Jemima, and she figures very importantly in this as well. So I then looked in the products of industry census, which is a very rich census. They're more sometimes difficult to find. But this is not as opposed to the population census, but this lists what people did as an occupation, how much raw materials they used, how many workers they had, and so they're really valuable. And uh, he was in Bloomfield, again, in, in uh, 1850. His capital, though, was only $1,000, so he just barely made the... Uh, the product of industry. I think that was their cutoff point. He used 400 pounds of brass, 600 pounds of iron, four tons of coal. This only cost him $175 for materials. And he had four male hands, of which his two sons were old enough to be working in the shop at the time. That would have included himself and then a fourth person. Uh, wages were only $100 a month, but he, he, over a year he only sold $1,600 worth of engraved ornaments and plates. So it wasn't a big business, it was basically a small shop in a small town in New Jersey. So if you look at the population census in 1860, again his real estate's about the same. Uh, he has two daughters living at home, still uh, the youngest son's living at home. His mother, believe it or not, is still living, and she's 84. Uh, and then in 1860, though, his business is very small now. Uh, he's listed with a capital of $330. He's using very little brass, very little iron. He has one employee, that would be himself. He sold 250 pieces that year of rolls and stamps. So that tells us a little bit more. Now it's not just stamps, but it's rolls. These would be bookbinding rolls. So. Here's an example, and I'll talk more about this later. Well, then I discovered that what somebody had written in 1940 a fantastic detailed genealogy of the Dodd family. Originally it was spelled D-O-D, -D, then they went to D-O-double-D. -D. 
And uh, if you look around Bloomfield, New Jersey, Dodds are like Smiths. I mean, they're everywhere, which makes it actually more difficult to research because you're finding Dodds all over the place. And there are a lot of Samuel Dodds, so you have to be very careful. He was born in 1797 in Bloomfield, and he died in 1862 in Bloomfield. And here's what's significant. He was oldest of nine children. And then I learned, reading the newspapers, the, the Newark Centennial newspapers that were on the American Antiquarian Society microfilms, that San, his father, who was Samuel Sr., died in 1815 quite unexpectedly and quite young. He was a farmer, and his farm was sold to pay debts. There were numerous notices of the farm going up for sale and so forth there. And Jemima was left to raise the family. Of the original nine children, six were still alive, in 1815, aged 9 to 17, and Samuel was the oldest at 17. So somehow through all this, being the oldest son, he got somehow into the engraving business. He must have indentured with somebody. I have no idea who he, he went with. A, a person I'd like to think he might have worked with is Peter Maverick, who was in Newark at the time and could well have, have been the master, but we just don't know. So there's, a, there's very little we know about Samuel's early life. Uh, again, he was age 17 when his father died, and he, and he signed just this one engraved plate. Uh, and the engraved plate was actually, and I'll go into more detail on that later, uh, mantle uh, fielding thought that it was actually done before 1820. Uh, it probably wasn't done at that, that early uh, time. The earliest known work of his is this one in Wolf that was done in 1835. So then I started doing a Google search. I do this last only because there's so many S. Dodds and Samuel Dodds out there, thousands. So you have to try to narrow and figure out a little bit more about the person. And I came up with something, an archive at Winterthur, just a, a finding aid that talked about the Dodd brothers' papers from 1860 to 1876. And these were, were Samuel Dodd's two sons. William H.C. Dodd, and it was Henry Conant, I believe, and then Samuel Walter Dodd. And uh, it says they were, this is in the Winterthur's description, they were engravers from Newark, New Jersey. Uh, they succeeded S. Dodd and son. And here's what's really caught my eye. It says the design book features thousands of engraved images used in the Dodd's engraving business. So I looked at that and I thought, maybe it'll, t I didn't think about Samuel, in, in a, a book of his engravings, I thought maybe it will tell me something about the father if I can see the son's book of engravings. And Winterthur's 10 minutes from me, so I, as soon as I could, I went out there, called all the, the material out, and literally, as soon as they brought the book out and I opened it up, I knew it was the father, not the son. It, it was much more difficult to prove that, but it, it, it was one of those instinctive things. The reason was it was very early paper. It wasn't late 19th century paper, three-quarter 19th century paper. It was early laid paper, or early wool paper. There were two stamps for Bloomfield on the very first page for Bloomfield uh, manufacturers. Then two of the stamps inside were quite familiar to me. Make sure we're on that. Okay. 
I'm going to try to back up one here. Here, back up some. Okay. Let's go back. Yeah. Okay. The book consists of 144 pages. And these were at some point taken out of a notebook and then mounted onto muslin, probably to protect them, because it was a working book. It was a book to be used in the shop. It's a design pattern book, basically a price list to show other prospective clients what kind of work he'd done. And if you wanted a design just like that, you can have number 40. And that cost $1.25. Uh, it's bound in suede, kind of crudely bound in suede. It's pretty grubby from a lot of use, so it was a real working copy. There are 2,500 stamps in the book, and uh, they were done on smoke proof, so that means as he made the tool and finally cut it, he would actually monitor his process, progress by making a smoke proof, holding it in a sooty candle flame, stamping it on a piece of paper or a piece of leather, and then keep filing it down till he had it just right. Once he was done, then he'd make a final proof, stamp it in the book, and then he'd put a price in the book. And it looks like he did it chronologically. He started number one and stopped at 2500 when he died. Uh, they're priced from $0.10 cents to $50. Most were priced. Well, the total here is $4,513. i am kind of a scientist, so I did a spreadsheet and added them up. And so they're less than $2 a stamp. So they weren't expensive stamps. They're, they're just every kind of stamp you can imagine. But I did lots of lyres. There were 40 lyres, for example. I mean, that was really popular at the time. Eagles, corner stamps. They're simple to highly decorative. Many stamps are done in left-right pairs because they, they have to be stamped that way. Uh, he also did plaques for book covers. Uh, full cover plaques as well as sectional ornaments. So these would be used often for blind stamping a book where you wouldn't be putting any guilt on but wanted to stamp the whole book. And then he did a lot of commercial stamps for hatters. Newark was a huge center of the hat making industry. And if you look inside of the old hats, they'd have a silk band and they'd have a gilt stamp of the hat maker in that. So he designed the stamps for the, uh, the silk bands. Uh, he did stamps for bookbinders, for hotels, for libraries, for the U.S. government, for other governments. Uh, there are states involved. Here's a, he's in Bloomfield, and somehow he reached out to Alabama, Georgia, Illinois, and Louisiana. I still can't figure out because I haven't seen any early advertisements from him prior to 1848, and a lot of work he did was before then. He also did work for Mexico and Paris, so somehow he got around and got known. So I'm going to go through a few of these that, that caught my eye initially. This is the first page of the book. And on the left side, you'll see it's up, I mean, the, the words are upside down. He just put these in piecemeal before he started numbering stamps. He's got the days of the week, which everybody needs a set of the days of the week. He's got, you know, Bible uh, titles. Uh, he has uh, uh, gouges or gouges on the right-hand side, full sets or individual. You could buy the full set or just individual ones, and these were useful. But one that caught my eye because I thought I recognized it were the liars. These are three-inch tall liars, so they're spectacular stamps, <laughs> and they were quite expensive. They were $15 each. And uh, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I owned the book on the right that had that stamp, and that's the one that Terry used, I believe, on the poster. 
And then this one caught my eye because the corner stamp in the upper left-hand corner is actually part of a plaque. Anything bigger than about the one-inch square was too large for a bookbinder to stamp by hand. So if it was big, then he would stamp that in a press on another piece of paper, cut it out, and glue it into the album. And that's the left-hand one. That looked very familiar to me. And this is the first page of his price list. You know, just a manuscript price list, but obviously, as he thought about it, I guess, after a few years and decided, I may have to redo, re reproduce some of these at some point. It would sure be handy to have this book. Not to show around as a price list, but to have on hand if somebody came to him and wanted a stamp like another stamp. And I'll just go through. This is just a sampling of some of the stamps he did. These are the first few pages. And you'll see over time, and, and as chronologically think of these maybe in the, at the 1830s at this point, they get fancier and fancier. You'll see a lot of Masonic symbols, the, the, uh, the triangle with, the, with all the rays around it is a Masonic uh, C&I. So that, I mean, these were very popular things at the time. Brian, I seem to be frozen up here. Here. Great, thanks. Additional ones, some of them get pretty fancy. Again, you'll see liars all over the place, very popular. And I mean, the workmanship on making this was quite, quite unique because these are all done from a solid piece of brass and then filed down. There's some corner pieces in there. I think on almost every page he has a liar. A, ni a nice fountain on the bottom. I mean, these are... And again, this is just a sampling. A phoenix. Ladies' album. I still haven't located the ladies' album that that would have been stamped on. It, it might have been Riker, but I, I just haven't found that one yet. And these are pretty elaborate now when you're getting... These are probably in the 1850s. These are some of the ones he for businesses that he did for, some for hotels. You see a courier bindery from Alton, Illinois. How did they contact him? This was actually a newspaper in Alton, Illinois, and they had a bindery in the newspaper. And then you have a whole plaque on the left. I haven't identified the book that that's on. So I'm going to go back now and focus on some of the stamps that led me to... to, to confirmed to me that this is Samuel Dodds. The upper left-hand uh, corner, if you look at the wolf example, and I, I literally, I ran upstairs at Winterthur, I went to the reference stacks, and I pulled out wolf, and I brought it down, and I said, that's the corner piece on the stamp, on the album where Dodds signed the central plaque. So it told me he was at least contemporary with that, and it's most likely if Riker used a central medallion stamp, he would have likely used a stamp from Dodd as well that looks just like that. So here's a close-up of that. There's a comparison, the corner plaque in the smoke proofs on the left and the, uh, and the albums on the right. And of course, each 
corner is different on this four-corner plaque because it's all hand-done. So if you look at the details on the, on the uh, album itself, every corner is slightly different from every other corner. And then the other thing you notice on the very first page, he has a, a stamps for the Boston Athenaeum. Now, I didn't notice it, but he misspelled Athenaeum, and I think Joe Falcone Cohen pointed that out to me. But if you look at it, he had one and then in manuscript, octavo and then duodecimo. These would have been for spines of books in the Boston Athenaeum collection. So I thought it would really be important, since it was on the first page, if I could document the date that they first started using it. Well, I was asking an awful lot because that long ago, people just don't have the records, but they were able to find where it was used. They found Stanley Cushing sent me this uh, print. They had stamped for a period of time every engraving and every book in red ink so that nobody would steal the engraving using the stamp, and he had corrected the spelling. You see here on the left is the, the original one, on the right is the corrected one using ink rather than any kind of a, a gilt decoration. But it was used in that way. It may have been used on some books, but they haven't been able to, to find any. And a lot of this history is lost. The other one you may have noticed, very similar in design, was one said B. Olds Library. And I wasn't familiar, and so I did some research, and I found there was a Benjamin Olds in Newark, New Jersey, that worked from 1820 to 1860, a long period, as a bookbinder, a publisher, a printer. He was into everything. And I found out from Joe Falcone that Benjamin Olds had a circulating library. He says that that's what B. Olds Library means. It's a circulating library. But he couldn't find, he thought he'd seen a stamp, he couldn't find it. This was back in uh, September last year. So I was at a book fair in uh, New Jersey, coincidentally, in uh, December, and I pulled the book out for no good reason. I still don't know why I pulled it out because it didn't have an interesting binding. It was just an older cloth-bound book. And I pulled it out and I opened it up. And here inside is a nice label from Benjamin Old Circulating Library. So I knew that he definitely did have a circulating library. But obviously it wasn't as early as I was looking for. And it didn't have the stamp. But this is in a book. Uh, dated 1835, and it's most likely he put these stamps into brand new books before he put them in his library. Well, bless his heart, Joe Falcone found the book he was looking for in March and sent me this. It had a, its own stamp, uh, its own label, as well as a stamp, so it was an earlier label, and this is Boston 1827. And the title page, similar to what the Boston Athenaeum did, they used the stamp on the title page, not on the outside of the book. So here's a blow-up. This is the smoke proof on page one of the Dodd album, and then the uh, stamp on the title page of the circulating library book. So that's the earliest stamp I found in, in Dodd's book that I can relate to an actual appearance in a book. And it, again, it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that Benjamin Rolls was in Newark, New Jersey, um, Samuel Dodd was in Bloomfield, New Jersey, three and a half miles away. So then you go back to the liars. Uh, I'll call the one on the right the winged liar. That's the one I'd, I'd found on the, uh, on the album. And then the flaming liars on the left. So 
It turned out I had at home two copies of Riker albums, both dated 1833, and, and Riker, this was a case where Riker rarely put dates on his title page. Both were dated 1833 on the title page, and both actually have different title pages. But it's the same book. And uh, there's the two different title pages for the same album. And here's a, here's a close-up of the Dodd uh, plaque, and then on the right is the is the actual book, and one in red and one in uh, brown leather. So then that left the liar on the left. Where where's the flaming liar? It's such a spectacular liar. It must have been used. I searched every library that I could that had collections of albums. Nobody has ever seen the flaming liar, and I I met with. Uh, Wilman Spawn, back in December at Oak Knoll Books, he was there to work on his the book that he was publishing for an exhibition. And so we took, and I, I brought an example of this liar to, for him to see. And the next day, he said, I found your liar. It's on a book, it's called The Washingtonian Pocket Companion. Now, I don't think... This book, first of all, after I researched it, is a unique copy. There's no other copy of the book with this liar on it. it every copy of this particular book was, was published in Utica in 1842, so much later, I think, than the liar. The liar should have been 1833, 32. Um, every other copy is bound in a plain publisher's cloth. So I think what happened is, at some point, a bookbinder got a hold of the plaque and he thought it would really look good on this temperance hymns book, a liar and hymns kind of go together. And I haven't seen any other copies of this, but I'm still looking for an album with that liar on it. So the Bryn Mawr copy is unique, but it was a great find on Wilman's part. And here's a blow-up. There's the flaming liar on the left and the uh, Utica imprint on the right. and. Uh, the book is unsigned as far as who bound it, so we don't. It was probably somebody in the Utica area, but we don't know. Now, where did Dodd get his ideas? Well, it, there's a. I, I borrowed or I robbed a, a picture of a, the liar on the right from eBay. Somebody was selling a book with an 1833 imprint from Philadelphia, and it's just interesting how you see very similar types designs about the same time. You know, we know the, the Dodd Flaming Liar should be about 1833. Here's a Philadelphia imprint with a, uh, a copper plate engraving or a steel engraving about the same period and the same kind of design. So these people all probably borrowed from contemporary works. Here's another example. There was a, there's a, what looked like a spine title, so I tracked it down and there's a copy, there's a book called The Berean published in Putney, Vermont in 1847, and there's the uh, the Berean on the left is, the, is Dodd's uh, stamp, and on the right the actual gilt stamp. And then if you look on the lower right, you see the modern horse doctor. Again, it looks like a spine uh, title, and here's the book here. And I found the book actually almost by accident up at an antique center in, uh, in Maine, but it was a really grubby copy, and uh, uh, University of Rochester sent me a picture of a really nice copy they had. So here's a, a close-up of that. And again, you can see it's the same, same design. And the nice thing about these is these books were published on very specific dates, so you can date within the album exactly when that was done.
uh, on the upper hand left, Sue Allen helped me with this because she she remembered this when she went back home and she, sure enough, there's a very, very similar blind stamp on a book published in 1856. And it, it, coincidentally, it turned out I'd found the book for her at a book center up in Connecticut because it had an unsigned Feely design on the cover, uh, on the spine, and I'd never really paid much attention to the blind stamping, but she did, and she found this one. So a lot of people have been very helpful at, at finding more of these. If you look at the upper right, there's some stamps They say government U.S. bindery. And of course the government did a lot of binding of their own, and they may have had multiple copies of some of these stamps. But uh, my son's in the National Guard in Philadelphia, and we were up there over Christmas for a lunch, and I saw in a case behind glass, so that's why the picture's so bad, but there was a book from August 1862. This is just about the time that Dodd died, and it has a very similar stamp of the government for the U.S. bindery. And this is one just recently Todd Patterson found for me. I'd loaned him the, the book of the engravings, and he found two in his collections. One is 1843, and this is the blind stamping in the corners. And you'll see here there's a very similar design. It may not be exact because, again, remember, Dodd did probably multiple copies of some of these. But it's, it's obviously the same design, but whether it's one he, he did from this, it's, it's hard to say, but it's very, very close. Uh, this is another one here, Poems of uh, Nathaniel Willis, a very common book, but this is 1856, and it has an unusual strap work design on it. And Todd found this in the album here, very close. It has a few little additions to it, but it's basically the same design. And, and Dodd, as you, as you go through the catalog, did many designs and di different variants on the design, so it wouldn't be surprising if he did a repeat of this and then added a little bit of embellishment. Let me talk a little bit about Dodd and his business. Uh, Tom Conroy had done a really good job writing his book on American uh, Bookbinders Tool Cutters at researching the working dates of people like Samuel Dodd. He'd gone through city directories, but unfortunately, as I learned later from him, the directories had had their ads removed. People had torn the ads out over the years, so he was going from the main directories. So I went through every ad of the Newark City directories from the first directory, which was 1835. And lo and behold, in 1848, a year before Dodd actually appeared in the main directory, he had his first ad. It was a full-page ad on pink paper, um, S. Dodd, tool cutter and engraver, Bloomfield, New Jersey, but he goes on, hatters, printing, bronzing and gilding dyes, marking brands, harness uh, makers. Uh, he did not just books, but everything connected with stamps. And the neat thing is he has on the outside of these, the text, and my guess is he did the engraving, he has all these little vignettes that show the actual end uses of what he did. So a little vanity here is where he talks about door plates. He has a door plate and he has S. Dodd on the door plate. And I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, door plates and bell plates. So I'll show you kind of a blow up of some of these to show. Starting at the upper left hand corner, he talks about book rolls. And again, that's, that's the book roll. So he has a little vignette for that in the upper left-hand corner. Then he talks about stamps, and you see a little stamp. 
Uh, on the upper right, he talks about saddler tools. So he has a saddle that's all stamped. Uh, embossing tools, so it's a little uh, roll with uh, embossing uh, marks on it. I mean, it's really clever. I've never seen anything like this in an ad. He talks about sides and backs, lines, uh, and then the, the gouges. He's got the door and the bell plates. Um, it really is quite quite a remarkable ad. Ryan, I'm going to need help again. This thing freezes up every now and then. Thanks. So every year up through 1851, he had these kinds of ads. Then he switched to a two-page ad where he used the same ad more or less on the left. And then on the right, he, he separates out and he talks about harness making. And I didn't know at first what these are, but these where he talks about uh, um, loop plates, that's what those engraved things are. Those are for harnesses, for, for engraving uh, loops on harnesses. But one of the things I want to point out on this, he was a real entrepreneur. First of all, in the 1851 ad, he tells where he lives, which is really useful. He says he's a few rods from the turnpike road leading from Newark to Bloomfield. Well, there's, there was the, the Bloomfield turnpike was that road. And a rod is 16 feet, so you're talking about maybe 100, 200 feet. So he was very close to the turnpike. Uh, then at the bottom, which is intriguing, he talks about a case containing specimens of work may be seen at the drugstore of R.H. Tripp in Newark, New Jersey, where all orders left will be punctually attended to. And previously, he talked about you can leave your orders and they'll be attended to in Newark at four different places. One was a printer, one was a book binder, uh, one was a... Uh, uh, this drugstore, and then there, there was a coffee shop. So, I mean, he really reached out. He, he realized Bloomfield wasn't really on the map. And so, as a result, he basically let people drop their work off at four places in Newark, and then he probably sent his young sons into town to pick them up and bring them back. But I like the last one, though, because somewhere there existed at one time a case, and wouldn't it be great to be able to find that? So I looked at a map. This was at the Newark Public Library. I apologize for the lights, but that day it was 90 degrees in the library. Their air conditioning had gone off, and the lights were the least of the problem. I was worried about dripping sweat onto the map, and they had it covered in plastic. But this is an 1850 property map of, uh, of uh, Essex County, where, where uh, it's located. And you see the diagonal road is Bloomfield Turnpike. And then S. Dodd, where the green arrow is, he's just to the left of that, and that, that's his house just a few rods off the Bloomfield Turnpike. So I went to that spot. That triangle shape of land is still there today, but unfortunately every semblance of every house from the 19th century is gone. It's all 20th century houses. And this is the Dodd roll that I brought. And, uh, uh, Tom Conroy, Conroy helped me find this. He had seen it on the internet. There's a company called uh, Bindery Tools LLC in, uh, in Pennsylvania Dutch country. And he'd seen it on the fellow's website. And he says, Steve, he said, it's priced right. He said, you ought to go up there and get it. So I called him. He says, yeah, come up and get it. Well, it turned out that my wife went with me. We spent all day getting this roll because we went up there. It was probably an hour drive. And then we went and met him next to a chicken coop. And then we drove to a barn, and it wasn't there. We drove to a second barn, and it wasn't, because he had stuff stored everywhere. Then we drove another probably 45 minutes to his house across country. I spent two hours going through hundreds of tools looking for this. 
hand stamps as well as rolls. It wasn't there. I saw a lot of nice tools, but no Dodd tools. So he said, it must be back at the first place. We went back to the first place. It wasn't there. We went back to his house again, and then my wife and I went off antiquing. And he called us within an hour, and he says, I found it. It was in the garage. So we went back and picked it up. But it was the hardest work I ever had getting a tool. But it, it, it's so unique. So this just shows a, a close-up of the particular tool. It, it wasn't a particularly fancy tool. He made hundreds of rolls. Who knows what happened to the pattern book for that. And there are a few known rolls out there. Uh, but hand stamps, I've not been able to locate a hand stamp yet, although some were sold at a sale many years ago, but nobody knows who bought them. So, so we're still looking for a hand stamp that I can actually line up perfectly with the, uh, with the book of stamps. The other thing I'm trying to locate is there was one reference to a, one engraving that he did. So I, I drew the best I could what it would look like because nobody alive has ever seen it. And it doesn't exist anymore, apparently. It was lost. Uh, it was described in Mantle Fielding's book and it's a bust of Washington in uniform. And this is after a Gilbert Stewart drawing, so that's I used one of the Gilbert Stewart drawings. So it must have been something like this, probably cruder. And he notes that it was part of a trade card. It was just a little vignette. It was probably, and he thinks it was before 1820, because it was signed S. Dodd, S.C.T. for sculptor, and New Ark in two words. But actually, New Ark in two words was used a lot later than 1820 but it was for the Washington Bleach Works, and I've not been able to locate anywhere the Washington Bleach Works. So I started researching this, and I went to Baker, the engraved portraits of Washington. Baker collected thousands of portraits of Washington. And this is Baker number 200, the dot engraving of Washington. And he, Baker said in his book, it was the only known specimen he'd ever seen. So then you go later and you find... Uh, in Hart's Catalog of the Portraits of Washington, published in 1904, he says the Baker collection was given to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So I say, great, I'll go up there and find it. So I went up there and spent many hours, and they spent many hours. Uh, I found it in the manuscript, I didn't find it in the manuscript card file. They said, not to worry, not everything's in the card file. But it skipped from 199 to 201, and that wasn't a good feeling to me. Well, to make a long story short, they found a scrap of paper in with the Baker collection, and this is one of many items that have been missing for probably about 50 years. Things get lost, I guess. And the, the security wasn't as good there many years ago. But here's the, the good thing. I searched under Dodd while I was there, and uh, up came Samuel Dodd, a silhouette. So I thought, well, Samuel Dodd actually is a pretty common name. And there was no place, date, or provenance. So I had them call the silhouettes out. And, and right now, I'll tell you, it is Samuel Dodd, and I'll tell you later why. Uh, it was on the back, it says Samuel Dodd Father. And I date it to about 1815 to 1821, when he was between 18 and 24 years old. And the reason I know that is because of all this genealogy work that somebody had done. So if I hadn't done, you know, learned enough about the names of his family, it wouldn't have meant anything to me. But here on every silhouette on the back, it said Samuel Dodd, father, Gemnina, 
That's Grandma, Mary, Dodd, Grandma, Mother, Enos, Dodd, Jonas, Aaron, Sarah, Dodd, and Sarah, Dolly. So this is what it had on the silhouettes. Well, when you match up the people that you know about, I can get seven of the eight people that I know are Samuel Dodd's either brothers, sisters, mother, or grandmother, or uncle, or grandfather. So you have Samuel Dodd, and I'll show you a little bit bigger of these. I don't know how these got upside down on the bottom. <laughs> they, they were right side up earlier. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing that I noticed is, and maybe some of you can tell me why, is all the men are right-facing and all the women are left-facing. And it's like sinister and dextra. I don't know. Uh, they'd be framed together, but not necessarily... You know, in a family like this, but uh, I—it's every in this case, every man is right facing, every woman's left facing, even if they're if they're children. So it's something to think about. But anyway, you have Samuel Dodd as a father. Well, this is Samuel as a young man. Jemima, Samuel's mother was Jemima. Grandma mother—that's Mary E. Dodd. Well, her name was Mary Edo Dodd. Uh, Enos Dodd was Jemima's father. Jonas is Jemima's brother. Aaron was Samuel's brother. Uh, Sarah was uh, Sarah Curran Dodd. And then there was a Dolly Dodd. And Dolly, unfortunately, is a nickname for so many names, I, I just don't know who that was. Right? Thanks. Well, at least they're consistent. <laughs> uh, so again, we have kind of the immediate family. And I've taken out Dolly Dodd because I don't know who she is. But uh, So I'm confident this is... Samuel Dodd, how these silhouettes from New Jersey wound up in the historical society, I don't know. They have no idea. They have no provenance whatsoever uh, on them. But uh, it's pretty clear it's his family. And I've wind up. I spent a long day up at the Bloomfield Cemetery. I had a hunch that Samuel was buried in Bloomfield. Uh, he was. I found his, his death notices, and he was Presbyterian. The Bloomfield Cemetery was a Presbyterian cemetery. So I went up there in the rain, and uh, the records weren't particularly good, and I made many, many traps back to the office until I finally found their plot. And Samuel Stone's in the middle. It's almost illegible now because it's limestone. His wife's on the right, his father and, and his mother are on the left and his daughter's on the far right out of the picture there. But it was, it was good to at least find a closure on this. And the, the other interesting thing I found is a young man of 17 went through and recorded all the information on the gravestones in 1976 for a bicentennial project. And uh, without that, they wouldn't have had any of the information on the, on the death dates and the, the amount of the number of the birth dates of the family and so forth there. So just amazing how these things work out. But uh, I think that's it. Now, I do want to mention, I've got to acknowledge a whole bunch of people. Sue Allen has started it all for me. Bruce Bazelon, he's the fellow that donated these to Winterthur. And it's an interesting story because this is 30 years ago. When I asked Winterthur, I said, how did you get this? And they said, well, we can't tell you. I said, I'd really like to know. And uh, so they said, we'll contact the donor if he, he or she is still alive. This is 30 years ago, so anything could happen. Uh, they were able to contact him through the Internet. The address had changed, but it's an unusual name, so that was good. Wrote him, asked if, I said, can I contact him? They said, they wrote him, he said, yeah. So I talked to him, 
he was a young student and had done a lot of research on military. His, his profession is a military historian. Done a lot of research at Winterthur. He said they'd been really helpful to him. He had bought all this collection of archives at an antique dealer in New Jersey, Livingston, New Jersey, which is right around the corner from Bloomfield. And his wife was a good friend of the daughter of the antique dealer. So while they were talking upstairs, he went to the basement, rooted around, and got these out of the basement. They'd been, and the antique dealer had died, and his spouse was just selling whatever she could sell. So he said he didn't pay a whole lot of money for them. He knew they were quite important, and he thought Winterthur was the right place for them. So, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, they donated these to a place rather than sold them. If he'd sold them outright, they would have been buried in somebody's collection forever. And uh, so that, that was a really interesting story, but it does show something can be buried in a, in a museum or a library for 30 years and then surface. So there's, there's still a lot of treasures out there. Tom Conroy, who wrote really the book on bookbinders, tool cutters, has been really helpful. And then the American Antiquarian Society, Sue Wolf, she let me look at their collection of uh, albums because I was trying to find other examples of his cuts. Uh, Bloomfield Cemetery, Bloomfield Historical Society, Boston Athenaeum, Bryn Mawr, uh, Joe Falcone, New Jersey book dealer, uh, Harker Bindery, Sam Allenport, who, who sold a number of tools, Samuel Dodd tools, and showed me um, examples, smoke proofs of those, but unfortunately in the catalog they weren't identified which were Dodds and which were other people, so I just don't know. Uh, Historical Society of Pennsylvania, the library company who shared all their albums with me, Newark Public Library, Todd Patterson, uh, Princeton, Robert Molesky made me copies of all the directory ads for Dodd. University of Rochester, she got me the Dr. Dad book, course book, uh, of course Winterthur, and that's it. <laughs>